Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome again to the Nook for Tales to Terrify. This evening will be the final audio from the memorial for our late host, Lawrence Santaro. Included in the show notes will be a link to donating to the American Cancer Society in the hopes that others will not leave this world too soon. As a reminder, Martin Munt, a long time, or should I say, one of the original Friends of Tales to Terrify, emceed this event and will introduce the speakers. Uh, next up is Richard Schwedick. Yes, there he is. Richard is a Nebula Award winner for his Soar stories, or one of them. He also, te- oh, he's right here. He also teaches science fiction writing. His stories are subtle and full of wonder. That's mine. And with all of that going for him, he even looks like a writer. He is going to be reading a selection from Cordwell's book. Thank you. Okay. Rather than try to fit in a complete Larry story, um, Larry's stories never fit into luggage very easily. No, they, they always stuck out a bit. So we're just going to do the uh, first few minutes of uh, Cordwell's book, all about the Red Lion. And uh, one thing. Um, I'd go to the Red Lion to the Twilight Tales readings all the time. And I'd sit there, and Larry and his own group of folks would even talk with his friends. They would get along, and the only thing, the first thing that he said to me, um, that wasn't just barroom chatter. Um, after I had read a story called The Measure of All Things, um, which Tina had published in a chat book and went on to become a cover story of fantasy and science fiction and the first source story. Larry walked up to me, and he looked at me very gravely, and he said, I hate you. (laughs) And you know that when Larry said he hated you, you know, it was because you had done something of consequence. At least you felt that way. 
So when just north of Nor nowhere came out, he was, um, you know, he said, could you write a blurb for this? Uh, you know, he sent me an advanced proof copy of the book. And I'd read a lot of the sections. I mean, I'd heard him read a lot of the sections over at, uh, at Twilight Tales over the years. And I saw the book go together. And I wanted to send him an email back that just said, I hate you so much. And now I miss him. So, anyway, here's the beginning of Cordwell's book. What I write of my experience, I swear, is the truth. The rest, I don't know. John Cordwell loved a story, and a story, he always said, is best told tinkered, sir. Yes, sir, tinkered. I write that, and I hear John in his seventh Earl of Muffington voice. John was not an Earl, and there is no Muffington except in a foul tale or two. But being both very British and not an Earl of anything was also part of the Book of Cordwell, that special creation, his life. His tale, a thing he tinkered all the time, not lying, you understand, simply enhancing the experience of being John Cordwell and for the credulous unenlightened, tinkering. All right, the Red Lion is a bar, a pub on Lincoln Avenue, Chicago, a red pin in the map of my life. I've gone steady with the place since I moved here from the East in the 70s of the last century, already a theater head a director looking for work. In those years, Lincoln Avenue was a respectably seedy diagonal slant of north side real estate, bars, booksellers, coffee shops, folk joints, and blues clubs, edgy record shops, and places that gathered the shuffling, the sweaty, the hip, and the giggly, the black-eyed pop girls with shy smiles and belly button bangles, and those who fed on them all and theaters. Lincoln Avenue cut through what then was America's theater wonderland. Steppenwolf, The Organic, St. Nicholas, Body Politic, Victory Garden. That was the heyday, the high watermark, the holy golden age of brash theatrical life and blood that was Chicago. Alas, alas, Chicago. Across from the Lion is the Biograph Theater. In 1934, Gentleman Johnny, John Dillinger, spent the last two of his earthly hours given watching Manhattan melodrama at the Biograph. Then he and his lady in red walked onto Lincoln into Chicago night. It was blown into history by G-man Melvin Purvis. It is said, when the wind swirls from the west to make the shadows moan, Dillinger still loiters on the avenue by the brick wall at the alley where he fell, a scent of the Indiana fields on which he grew up, rising, drifting. Well, I don't believe in ghosts. Didn't. Then the Red Lion pub was bright, white, and rose red, two and a half stories, and a peaked roof. Built a few years after the great fire, the lion is flammable as a soul. Defiantly wooden, the place droops. It would sag southward or lean to the north if not flanked by a pair of solidly respectable red brick businesses. A new generation has recently painted the lion an indefensible black and white at which John might have snorted and called the design a damn Nelsonian checkerboard. The year I came to town, the lion was a natural watering hole for theater creatures such as I, whom, you see, require large quantities of nightly beer and daily approval. The lion offered both. Inside its two floors of nooks, small rooms, and shadowy coves where smoke hangs and dreams are smelted, shaped, and blessedly forgotten. It is a place of low ceilings where narrow footpaths between stools and tables breeds cautious intimacy and requires social agility and grace to match. 
The publican, John Cordwell, was... No, the temptation is strong, but I'll not say he was Falstaffian, though John Cordwell had charms in common with that other Sir John. Cordwell was a big man, stood well above five foot four, and almost as much across. Like Sir John of the Henrys, Cordwell had been in his time a warrior, a pain in the ass to those he fought and those he served, an artisan, a lover, a teacher, a wise man, a rogue. He loved big things and beautiful women. He loved to shape things and bring people together. He loved drink and art and words and buildings. Buildings, yes. He'd been involved in what he called the last formal unpleasantry with the Hun. As a prisoner of war, he escaped frequently and was captured frequently. As a result, he'd made a grand tour of Europe, trucked from one Nazi chateau to another, one escape-proof camp to the next. One of these Bosch-sponsored Bosch road trips took him through Dresden. Though he sought between the slats of Catalory, Cordwell fell in love with the Rococo marvel and stone filigrees of that magical city thought it quite the most beautiful man-made place on earth. A few hours after his departure, the place was pounded to rubble. His chaps, the RAF at night, and the American 8th Air Force by daylight. Like most British families, the Cordwells had been touched by war throughout the century. His grandfather was wounded at Gallipoli in the first round of incivility with the Hun. Two great uncles were killed at Passchendaele during one of the battles of the Somme. John's brother was a London cab driver during the Blitz. The Blitz. The Blitz. John stared somewhere between the ceiling and his top-shelf Irish. What we found of him was a metal button from his jacket. In those days, to fly, to be given a plane in command, one had to be an officer. To become an officer, one had to be a gentleman. At least one had to be passed for a gentleman by an RAF board of review. Other officers, gentlemen all, Cordwell, you understand, was not a gentleman, not to the manor board, but Cordwell was also determined to fly. At his interview, he outfustioned the board. When asked what he might like to fly, if he were allowed to fly, Cordwell replied without hesitation, mustache a quiver, quiver. Oh, bombers, sir. No question of it. Heavy bombers. Hit the Hun where it hurts. Get the bally war over quick as that. What? Wizard, Cordwell, the inspector said. Jolly good. Take a letter, Miss Wren. Dear Adolf, might as well surrender now Cordwell's flying heavy bombers. <laughs> now that... John said years later in the pub he'd made on Lincoln Avenue. That was theater. John survived the enemy, his own officers. He survived the theater of war, emerged with tales of captivity, tales of pigs as pets, and being rabbits on the run. Oh, it was wizard fun, and it was awful, and he lived. It's what John did. He lived to tell it all. He came home, became an architect. Married an American, moved to Chicago, and built, built, built. Then he made the Red Lion. When I came to Chicago from the East, the Lion was a nest for a burgeoning core of actors who fancied themselves in the Shakespearean line. As an Easterner, I considered Shakespeare, the classics in general, to be my province, a place where practical stagecraft emerged with scholarship. You see, I like the stuff. Don't feel it needs improvement. Midwestern Shakespeareans seem all headbash and rock and roll. For them, it seemed less performance, more like day labor in an abattoir. Okay, shut up, Larry. The point is, I wasn't expecting much when I caught the first preview of The Tempest, the premiere work of a group calling itself Will's Jolly Crew. The performances under the stars on the Red Lion's roof garden beneath the spreading arms of Cordwell's ancient oak. A word, this ancient oak. 
It is not so ancient and definitely not an oak. A city weed tree. The thing grows in the crack between the pub and another building. When it reaches the roof garden, though, the thing does seem to have come magically up through the lion. The drunk, the trunk writhes and twines to spread a leafy canopy across the deck outside the second floor dining room. Very nice. From time to time, when nested birds shat upon his patron's fish and chips, John threatened to cut it down. He never did. It remains. John was allowed his eccentricities. Anyway, he loved that tree. Grounds the place, you know. Connects it to the world. I had to admit, for Tempest, the simple setting, night and tree, was effective. Even so, I wasn't expecting much. The production blew me away, simply stated the director stepped aside and let the play sing. It sang. Despite the whimsical familiarity suggested by the company's name, the actors of Will's Jolly Crew knew their stuff. By the end, I was in tears, weeping in part because the play always makes me cry. Tempest is Shakespeare's last script, a farewell to the worlds of magic he created over that short, extraordinary life. After this, he retires to Stratford, lives a wealthy man, then soon dies. Even on the page, Prospero's final speech moves. He breaks his staff, he drowns his book, then says, Now my charms are all overthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. The other reason I was bawling, reality had hit me. These people were good. At least as good as I. Better, maybe. Oh, fat. It's truth. In theater, no one is happy unless A, he's on top, and B, his best friend is in the dumpster. <laughs> These weren't my friends. I sat. I stared at the empty playing space at Cordwell's tree. I blunted my disappointment with a fourth pint. A moment later, I noticed another audience also still seated, also in tears. That was it for resemblance. He was an anti-me. I young, he not. I tall, he tiny. I'm okay, heavy set. He not so. No, not a bit. I am fully furred, haired, bearded at Alp. He was naked as a mole rat. <laughs> we sucked the dregs of Cordwell's thin, bitter English beer... Oh, and, and both shed salt tears, I for the passing of Shakespeare's magic, and because the butt end of my illusions was kicking me in the nuts. He, for whatever reasons, old men sob in the night. We both stared at the stage. The director's dad, I thought, and gathered my things. I was heading toward the aisle when, around me, the lights went out. From behind me, where the little guy sat alone, there came a glow. The light was cold, oh, so cold, and cast my shadow across the seats and among the branches of the tree. I froze, I turned. Four pints in three hours do nothing. I repeat, do nothing to my head, heart, soul, or eyesight. They also cannot make little old men incandesce in sweet summer night. I yelped out, one of the seven or eight queeps or whimpers actors tell me I make when I suffer and hide it from them. The old guy must have heard. He jumped and gave me a look as though I were an avalanche come down upon him. Ah, he said, and fluttered out like a candle in the wind, the scent of something smoky wafted toward me in the sudden dark. I do apologize for that, he said, his accent European, Northern, German perhaps, or somewhere east of there. He turned to the stage again. Yes, for that I do apologize. No problem, I said. This is most remarkable. He seemed to seek just the word to describe the past two hours. A most exceptional, still seeking, play, I ventured. No, a most remarkable Transfiguration. He was proud of that word. It savored its parts. His smile broadened at each syllable. Transfiguration. 
A good way to put it, I said. Humoring the gallery never hurts. Transfiguration is what an actor does. I swear he glimmered when I spoke this minor flattery. Glimmered, pulsed, once, twice, three times, then again, then went out. I donk you so very much, he said. His broad smile showed no teeth, but something glistened in the dark of his mouth, and I didn't look there again. Donk you, greatly, but no, no. That, that shadow show? No, no, not that. That was, he shrugged, squinted, squinted. That was, ah, well, delightful, but no, I mean this, he gestured, this wholeness, I mean this place. The sweep of his arms took in the roof, the dark tree and stage, the restaurant at our backs, the red lion below. It also seemed, uh, it also seemed to encompass all the times I'd had there. Maybe all that was to come in the dark ahead of me down the years, down the years to no. All right, still, the whole place was gathered by that one gesture and stuffed into my heart. God, would that I'd had him for my Minneapolis Mephistopheles and not Rick Bloody Bolig, I thought. Jesus. He smiled, nodded as though I'd spoken what I'd only thought. Yes? He'd come to a decision. You'll see it too, what Cordwell has fabricated here. He spit John's name and slobbered on it. Ach, ach, annoyance growing. Ach, 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 ach. His ox fluttered into a pizzicato back-throat growl. He finished coughing that vocal hairball and danced his pint. I cannot see Mr. Cordwell. No, not tonight. He turned to me. You will, for me. You shall give him diz. He handed me a wooden box. This ting, the box was the length and a half of an index finger, two fingers wide, one deep. You will tell him, John Cordwell, that this thing no longer stands between us. That thing you hold, yes, yes, you will. I'm going to end it there. Thank you. Thanks. And next up, we have Cecilia. And everybody here, I think, knows Cecilia. So I do not need to introduce her. She is going to read from the boys' room from Drink from the Thirst to Come. At a reading, you usually heard the first part or the last part of Larry's story. So, Larry, forgive me for this, but I did a cut and paste because I wanted the whole arc of the story. And uh, it's a story personal to me. There are just two people, the northern cousin, Melissa Patricia Tozier, the southern cousin, Barbary Ann Tozier, and her brother, Rafe Tozier, and it's in two time periods. The boys' room. Everybody loved Rafe Tozier. Who wouldn't love a boy as filled with mischief and life? First she saw of him, Melissa Patricia Tozier thought he was awful. Later, considering her Mississippi cousin from the comfort and distance of her home in Chicago, Melissa Toja thought he was the handsomest person she'd ever seen, even if awful. Then Rafe went off and died in the war, still only a boy, so everyone loved him forever. That's the way, someone said. Live beloved, die lamented. The shack at the foot of Toja land always had been the boys' room, always at least during Melissa Patricia's little life. There never was more than one boy at a time for the room, and the boy it was changed generation to generation, but always the place was where Tozier boys lived when they came of an age to be by themselves. Understand, the boys' room was not a sanitary facility. Understand that, 
The boys' room was a living place, a shack house, where a boy could grow and do things, things boys do coming to manhood, those things. And from there, a boy could use the back house for his necessaries. Washing up he might do in the big house. That might be all right, depending. Melissa Trish, just a little thing, barely remembered the visit later. What she did remember, though, she remembered vividly. One thing was having to go pee, and worse, down at the stinky, awful, falling-down outhouse, what her southern cousins called the back building, a thousand miles at least, and across that rickety bridge from the house. This was before the inside toilet was built. Rafe came sneaking up and leaned his long, tall self against the door of the old back house and blocked her in, trapped her with the smell and the bugs. Awful Rafe even covered up the sickle moon cutout with his hand to stopper the light and made the whole stinky place blacker. Trapped in dark, Melissa Trish positively knew those hairy, million-legged things, the ones for skittering upside down, underside, the too big wooden hole that was splintering her bony bottom, would take this opportunity to come crawl up between her skinny little legs. Rafe knew it, too. They gon' get you, he whispered through the dark and sent. Big black wolf spider gon' get you little place down there. Gon' climb up inside, then wriggle out your nose. Barbara Ann spoke of the Lady Ophelia, who had been one scary old lady. She terrified everyone. Ophelia had been a very deep conjure woman. Ophelia says, Barbarian quoted, When you study revenge for a wrong done, what you gots to do is to take the very thing was done you and turn it back forth on the door. Melissa Patricia was nowhere near sleep, though B.A. was. You mean, Melissa started to say, I mean, we could get us one of those jumping little spiders sometime. One of the ones Rafe locked you in with and which you are so afraid of, silly you, we catch it by some full moon's light and before morning comes, we grind it, make it, say into old Rafe's breakfast drink. He's partial to chicory, by the way. We make sure he takes full of it. The thought of spiders made Melissa shudder. She could barely speak the word. Thought of grinding one and eating, drinking? Thank goodness there was no time for waiting and worry. There it was. Full moon rising over back acres, white and wet hot, burning her eyes. Melissa knew, by and by, she was going to have to use the pot by the bed. And, because using it, then carrying the slushing thing across the lawn, over the bridge, past the boys' room to the back house. So, she might as well go out there with her cousin, the wise and knowing Barbary Ann, go there tonight and help her collect a big, crawling, hairy thing for the secret ceremony Ophelia had preached. Wake up, Melissa finally said aloud, shoved cousin B.A. off the bed. Cram in his loose trish, she said, rubbing her floor-bumped head and elbow. What? are you doing? Time to get us some, you know, spider, Melissa said firmly, peering over the side of the bed at her cousin, glad the moon was at her back, knowing she did not look as sure as her voice. Time to make us a vengeance. Barbary Ann carried an empty Prince Albert pocket tobacco tin, about the size of a hip flask. When they reached the back house, Melissa's hands shook. They were there to begin awful things, catch a spell-making creature, grind it to revenge. Here, Barbary Ann sucked the tobacco tin into Melissa Patricia's hands. Huh? It's your vengeance piece, Barbary said. You gotta harvest the spider bug. I am not grabbing crawlies from a cracker. Not alone. 
You are, you are indeed, her cousin huffed at her. And you're going to do the grinding and the mumbo-jumbo and the feeding of it, too, like Lady Ophelia says you will. Barbary Ann leaned forward. She breathed sleepy breath into Melissa's face. Once you set forth upon a career of vengeance and terror, she squinted hard. You committed, she yawned. For sure there's no going back. It's what you are. Vengeance himself, she says, Ophelia. Melissa Patricia's northern head tingled with that. Even she. If she had shivered before, locked in darkness by Rafe, daylight just a wooden door away, with daytime thoughts of hairy things to worry her, that was nothing to now. Blame Rafe before? Now, she stepped alone into that place. The sun's still a quarter world away. Cousin Barbary Aunt Tozier might be at her back, but it was her own dark, dark road of vengeance that she walked. She scanned the ceiling, the walls, looking, and, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, not wanting to see, she saw one, just one, big, a big one, saw one black leg, leg dangled from the pages of the Sears book hung by the seat. Thicker than a pencil lead, the leg had bristling hair. I see one, she barely breathed, hissing to her cousin. The leg twitched. Is it a rightly one? Her cousin whispered back. It's got to be appropriate, and by which it means it has got to be B-I-G big. The leg had become two and attached the edge of her body. Ah, 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 yeah, 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 he's big. Melissa Trish opened the flip lid of the Trent Prince Albert can. Wish the opening were bigger, the can longer. She stuck her hand toward the spider that squatted on the edge of the catalog. For all the world, the critter was breathing. If he's a wolf, you get him quick because they jump. Shaking more than ever, ever in her whole little life, Melissa wiggled the red king under the spider quick. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. She dined the edge of the catalog book with the king. The critter clamored. One leg, one long, thick, hairy leg rushed the tip of Melissa Trisha's finger. Where it touched... It tingled and tickled. She shrieked just a little and whooped the can's tin lip over the twitching beast. The gripping leg tried to hold her finger. She thought she felt a claw dig into her flesh, felt another leg grapple her skin, climb her hand, felt it cock itself for a leap. She shrieked again, and the whole fat, hair-covered body, a body with a pretty little light brown spot under its belly, went against the metal can, and whomp, Melissa Trish snapped the lid shut on it. That's how it started. In the kitchen, the first scare off the adventure, 
He couldn't stop giggling. Even so, Melissa was aware of the can she held. The thing was filled with spider. Through her giggles and slushes, the critter scrabbled against the sides and bottom. Tick, tick, tick. All the while, Cousin B.A. tried to control herself, keep from peeing with the laughter, she said. Melissa made sure Prince Albert's top state snapped good and tight. Every few seconds, she banged the can against her other hand, warmed it hard, and held it to her ear. Every time she listened, the insides skittered and scrabbled, and she walked again. Every time, she giggled less. What are you doing? Ye whispered. Stunning this thing. She whacked it again. Killing it, Melissa whispered and thumped it again. You cannot kill a spider like that, Melissa Trish. Not this one. Criminies, don't you know a thing? This spider's the Hulk catcher. Didn't you know? Having done the work of the night, Melissa felt bigger than herself at just that moment. She looked her cousin right down. I did not know that. And I was not to know such a thing. Now, was I, cousin B.A., was I? Well, it is a hawk catcher, Barbara Ann whispered. That there thing in the can is waiting to be told what spirit it's going to pitch and what it's to become in the next world. You got to treat it with wishful respect. And that would be what? Melissa asked. She gave the can a last muffled walk for good measure. How might we kill a thing respectfully? You say worship words over it and you grind it up. Grind it like you might do a handful of human soup. Like a pit to meal of him. Cousin B.A. told her in close. She spoke the charm words direct to Melissa Trisha's ear, her lips touching the hair that hung and sweated tufts from her cousin's temple. The words whispered will not be repeated. When they dumped the critter into the spice water, Melissa Trish stood by with pestle poised to pulp the beast. Ready? Cousin Barbara Andrew. Ready. No, wait, Melissa Trish adjusted. Pulled back from the table just a bit, held the marble grinding stick with one hand, not two, drew the other further from the whole affair, as though for balance. Ready, she said. Ready, okay. And Barbary flipped open the lid and whooped the can upside down inside the smooth ceramic bowl. The wolf spider was dazed and scrabbling mad. Its legs tried to go in all eight directions of its little life all at once. Poor dumb thing. It got whooped by the second, maybe the third, down beneath Melissa's shrieking hand. Ah, ah, she grunted. In fairness to her courage, she grunted quiet enough to not wake the adults middle of the dark. The grown tozers, therefore, did not hear conjuring being done in their kitchen that hot night. The lump that got the critter squeezed a lump of pale yellow jelly from the fat brown body, the which did not improve the spider's mood, nor seemed to impair its ability to scramble on the slick sides of the bowl. The next few pounds of the pestle, though, ground her up, legs, hair, jelly, and eye clusters, all. With each move of the grinding, Melissa tried her best to say the words her cousin taught her. She squeaked them out, which seemed to be what Cousin Barbary was doing along with her behind. They didn't make count, but twenty, twenty-five repetitions of the short verse, and the back house spider was just a gray paste in the mortar. And by then, the grinding had taken on the scent of cinnamon and cumin and cloves, and the night was still damp and hot. That nearly was it. They pounded it together with a measure of dry roast chicken from the can. They mixed it good and poured it in a little packet Melissa Trish carried with her as the two cousins giggled quiet up the steps by the creek in the morning light. Except, eating that evening, Melissa Trish noticed a knot hole in the wall above the stove, high up near the lathework ceiling. From the varnished pine knot, 
a pair of furry brown spider legs dangled into the dim light of the kitchen's single bar. The spider legs stayed all through the meal. That's right, Melissa Patricia remembered. That's right. Somebody's soul has been caught. Somebody's. <laughs> then there was that war, the Second World War. By the time Melissa Trish returned to the South, grown some and more a lady, but not by much, Rafe Tozier was gone and dead, killed in the Pacific Theater of Operations. Of course, Melissa was shocked hearing of the death. No, not shocked. Primaries. Who is shocked over a single death in so vast a war? Why, in a small way, isn't it expected? Death in war? Isn't it magical somehow when someone doesn't die? But there was surprise when news came. To her credit, Melissa was touched by it, suddenly touched. And of course, she felt it was a waste. So good looking, a boy being well just wasted like that. She remembered his hair and the sun. Figured as soon as what we did, cause we confided to Melissa when they were settling into that same little room at the top of the old house, the house which now seemed so much smaller and bigger all at once, the paint peeling more like scabs than ever. Oh, cousin, we buried a uniform of clothes, not even his, just Marine Corps dress with the medals he was owed and the officer bars that came awarded after he was already gone. She said it with an edge of sweetness and horror, a question hanging on her voice. A question? Why? 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 Nothing left to send home for burial, the government said. Can you imagine? Imagine. Nothing left of a whole human being. It was then and there in the hot little room, looking at her cousin's wet, pretty face. Melissa remembered the night the two of them had spelled Cousin Ruth, with his spirit for keeping into that of a ground-up spider. No disrespect, B.A., but under this hot roof there is no breath of air for me. It's sleep in the boys' room or on the porch. Thus Melissa came to sleep her first night in the boys' room, and her skin tingled with it. They carried bedding and pillows, and a few steps their feet were wet with dew, as before, the earth seemed cool, steeped in sundown shadows that had soaked into it from the woods. It was cooler in the boys' room. The place smelled old and closed up. A hint of something else hung there, but it did not smell too bad, not exactly, not after the place was thrown open to night air. There was a little of old leather to the smell, a lot of dust and moldy paper, the lantern's yellowing light showed piles and piles of mildewed magazines, newspapers, funny books, illustrated periodicals of sports and crime matters. Maybe there was something of dead animal to the air, too, but it cleared pretty well in a few minutes. Oh, Barbary, feel the night breathe, Melissa said, breathe through. Lying in bed in the boys' room, the cousins hugged and talked far toward morning, and suddenly they slept. When the bright spirit woke Melissa, she had no idea of the time. The air had become almost chilly. A hint of distant thunder mumbled against her chest and against her eardrums. The light that flickered the room was something else, though. Will the wisp? Foxfire, St. Elmo's, other things it could not be, popped to Melissa's nearly sleeping head. They were dismissed quickly. What it was, though, she did not know, not at first. Eventually, even a Yankee from the land of Lincoln knew enough to know a haunt. A soft light had risen in the sagging porch and sifted through the rusted screen door. Sometimes thin, sometimes solid. It never seemed like light or substance ought to be. Sometimes the form had too many legs for a human or any proper animal. 
At other times, the thing had an insufficiency of parts. Melissa's reckoning flickered between the extremes of too much, not enough. She saw it as a figure, though, a figure that at once walked, but other times simply pulsed softly, its edges drifting apart. When it moved, it sometimes did so with the jerky gait of an old soldier on a long parade, or it moved and didn't move, both at the same time, as though it stood statue still while the cabin called by, Melissa and sleeping B.A., merely passengers. The wraith seemed unsure, Melissa thought. If it had been a human person, she would have said it was pacing, looking. It slipped through solids, waited among piles of cousin wraiths writing magazines without turning the leaf. When it passed through the table by the fireplace, the rough wood faded and grew solid, like a skiff looming in fog. Of course, the spirit that lit the air of the boys' room was that of Cousin Rafe. She was certain of that. What are you sniffing at you? Melissa whispered to the ghost. At the moment, the hall exactly like it was doing just that, looking, remembering, peering round, sniffing something out, or looking for trouble, like boys did. Remembering what, you? Melissa thought. Life? She asked aloud, again not aloud enough to wake her cuz. What old life you seen, she wondered. Seen death, are you? Being blown to flinders on some Pacific island? Seeing boys and men go to graves? The spook turned and drifted again. Or you seen the ceiling here? Lying nights when you were a boy alone. Melissa looked at the ceiling and saw only the shadows cast by the haunt's flickering light. You remember the old outhouse down there? You see me back then? See me in your place, here and now? See the life you had and wasted and the life you do not have and want? See me? When the haunt passed through her body, Melissa shut off her mind for a moment. Passing through her, it felt feels like electrocution, she thought after. After, she recalled the sudden vibrations that climbed her hand and up her arm muscles when one day she'd accidentally grabbed the bare palms of an electric cord. Like that, but this tingle was everywhere, washed her deep, her hair buzzed with it, her vision flickered in sympathy, her teeth chattered. Rafe's ghost, goodness, call it what it is, Melissa thought, never paused inside her, but passed without effort. Melissa, transparent to him, a clear, clean window. He left a lingering of cinnamon, of cinnamon and cumin, just that, no, cinnamon, cumin, and a whiff of chicory, and, unaccountably, a whiff of charred cotton. What are you saying? she asked the spook, knowing it had some unfinished business in the world. Ghost had unfinished business, life left over to be lived. At the wall of the shack, the ghost rose into the air, seemed to climb a short run of steps, and sifted itself into the wood. It paused, half in and out, stood still in that long moment, drifting apart and drawing together at the same time, the thing, the ghost, the spook of her cousin, what Melissa assumed to be her cousin Ruth, turned and looked out over Melissa's head. She was less and less chilled by the old impotent thing. She wanted to reach out to it, wanted to speak to the remnant of dead cousin Ruth. Speak what a fool boy he'd been. Tell him, tell him that, well, Life was for the living, that was it, the old thing. He ought to get on out of it, get away. Life would go on without him and his old burn-up suit of clothes. Oh, yes. Melissa was curious about the after. Curious, and now she thought of it. 
somehow relieved. There was something after life. Maybe not a bright and golden place. No music and angels, which to be honest, she's always dreaded like church. But maybe forever was not fire and torment either, nor awful cold and distant echoes. Surely, though, there was a place where the dead went, where she would go when it was her time, a place in which she would be, for goodness sake. Death would not be a forever of nothing. Eternity was not a vast empty hole. The minute she died, she would not cease to be. Forever would not be a place she had never, never could, not ever seen, and which, upon arrival at the great final time, she might not approve of. No, eternity would be familiar, a place like home. Wayne has asked for a few minutes to uh, have a personal uh, reminiscence here. This is Wayne Allen Sally, another writer. I think most of you probably know him. So here's Wayne. You're getting tripped on, Wayne. It is, uh... Hello, everyone. A um, couple of uh, quick anecdotes uh, before I get to what I really wanted to say is that one of my fondest memories is that um, I would hang out with Larry. Um, Tina introduced us at the uh, Red Lion uh, one time, one night in 1995. Larry was uh, uh, just engrossed with the fact that my father had been a policeman. He uh, ended up taking some you know, notes about uh, law enforcement, that type of thing. But from there, I would end up uh, spending nights over at his house because it would be difficult for me to um, uh, get home, you know, late in the evening. Every Friday night, he would have people over to watch films. And then eventually, he got married to, to Celia, and I felt funny about staying overnight uh that much before, any more than that. But one night, I was on their couch, and what Larry and Cecilia would do, they would lie in bed together and read a, a, a novel. Larry would read for a certain amount of time, give the book to Cecilia, she'd read uh, some more. And that's how I fell asleep one night, hearing both their voices a little bit distant in the other room. And um, another instance with Larry was um, he had a cat named Ephemera, uh, uh, I believe. And uh, this was before he married Cecilia. And uh, I'd spent the night. Larry had told me ahead of time, he said, you could have the bed. You could, you know, you could sleep there because I'm just going to, I know I'm going to fall asleep in a chair reading. And he'd been reading a, bo a book about Jack the Ripper. I was lying in the bed, and it was a hot summer night. The cat jumped onto the bed. I believe, I'm not sure, Cecilia might know, but the, the cat was old and might have been blind at the time. And um, the cat assumed I was Larry, he, and I didn't want to bother him and I'm quite allergic to cats, and he draped himself over my arm. And so the next morning, my hand had swollen up uh, more than usual. But I don't know, that's just, just another thing where I ended up getting on the uh, Clark Street bus and getting back downtown and getting a lot of stairs because I had a hand that was red and gigantic. But... Um, but either way, uh, I mean, that's, that's one thing about Larry was just that he was so kind with letting anybody 
the other night uh, after the red line readings, if someone had uh, come in from out of town or whatever, they had a little, have a little nook with uh, one of the most perfect beds you could sleep in. And there were bookshelves on either side. And uh, But what I was going to say was that the, this is the very last time I saw Larry, and it was at one of uh, Brendan Denser's um, uh, Bad Grammar Theaters on, uh, when he was uh, doing it on Halstead Street. It would have been two summers ago. And um, over the years, a bookseller in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, has been um, rummaging through an editor who... Uh, drank himself to death in 1994, but ended up getting his entire collection of uh, books to sell. And as he's gone through them, he's found books I had given him or, or small press magazines, and he'd just mail them to me because he would say, you know, to Carl Edward Wagner from Wayne, 1986, or what have you. And I'd gotten one the very day that, um, now it's hitting my bald spot, um, anyhow, um, and so I'd gotten a copy of a magazine called Vicious Circle that same day, and I thought, okay, just for the hell of it, I'll, I'll, I'll bring that and I'll read from that. And it was an older story. I knew nobody had heard it before. And um, it was, I think it was, I was grateful that Larry was there that day because he would always sit up in front, and there are photos I have about myself and him that Brendan or his uh, sister Alex had taken from above. Uh, there was like a balcony where Brendan lived. And um, so the story I had in there was called Shots Down, Officer Fired. And I'd written it when I was very angry with my father um, in the early 90s because he had uh, reached the end of his alcoholism. Uh, and this would have been just about the time that that he had almost drank himself to death, and because of that, we were able to enter him into, um, you know, a place where we sober you up. And um, I had forgotten how selfish and angry I was when I wrote it. And at the same time, my father had just started what amounted to enough problems with his health that he. Um, eventually died from it. He died uh, six days after Larry, actually. Um, so as I'm reading the story, my thoughts finally caught up with me reading the words, and I realized that I'm doing my father such a grave injustice because he had just had his first major seizure of, of many, and then it went on to other things, and I had gotten to the point where I was starting to cry, and near the end of the very last page, and this had never happened to me um, before, um, and I could never, you know, even read one of Larry's stories aloud because I cannot possibly enunciate or even pronounce half the words that he uses in the story sometimes. But I got to a point where I just froze, and I, I, I just was not able to even let out a breath. And Larry took the book, knew exactly where I was in, in, on that given page, and finished reading the story out. Um, and um, that was it. He finished that, and that's the very last time I saw Larry that night, and that would have been two summers ago, and I really missed the guy. Um, I can still remember the very first time when I showed up from working downtown, with, and, and I think I showed up early, and Larry had been there because he didn't live far from the red line. And how it was just dark there, and Tina introduced us. And from there, um, you know, I had been working for a law firm, Skip Tracing, um, on Monroe and LaSalle, and it wasn't that far from City Hall where Larry worked. So we ended up 
having lunch maybe three times a week for the better part of uh, six or seven years. And, you know, that, that, you know, I have memories of that, and I've got the memories of, you know, Larry meeting Cecilia or talking about her before they got married and how giddy and wonderful he was knowing that she was going to come into his life. But at the same time, I remember Larry is Larry and how he would just jump in and assist, you know, to anybody, anybody who needed, if somebody needed help, you know, moving something, he would, he would go over to their apartment and help them, you know, rearrange things and, and take time from his own uh, life. But, uh, that's just how I remember him that very last time where I don't even know. It's like I, I could think that I even can feel the brush of his hand against mine as he grabbed that book as I just sat there like a ventriloquist dummy and he finished the last paragraph of the story and like other people have said tonight, they miss him and when it comes to writers passing away, it's always to me as if you're reading a story and it ends in the middle of a sentence because it's a sudden thing when people leave and at least we have his words and in my case, you know, he he handled my words when I wasn't able to and I'll always be grateful for that and I'm happy that Cecilia is here and that we were able to do this for her tonight to honor her. As far as I'm concerned, we're honoring Cecilia as much as Larry because she brought so much into his life. I know that because of, again, how much time I spent with him non-professionally when we would have lunch downtown and such and how, how his world changed. And again, I won't keep saying it, but he helped me out that one time, and, and I don't know that anybody else could have come in and taken over reading that. Otherwise, I would have been sitting there like a fool, not being able to talk. And he finished that reading for me. And that's, I, I miss Larry. And we've got those books, we've got those words, and that's, that's about all I can say, guys. It's about 10 after 10, and I think we're done for the evening. I think they close at 10. Thank you to everyone who spoke at Larry's memorial. Larry, you will be missed. I hope that us here at Tales to Terrify and the District of Wonders have done the best of our ability at trying to fill your shoes. Take care of yourselves, look after each other, and pleasant dreams. Mm -hmm. Tales to Terrify is looking for an editor, and I thought that I would let the listeners know what does an editor for Tales to Terrify do. The primary duties are, one, evaluate stories submitted to the podcast Gmail account for quality, two, pair accepted stories with appropriate narrators, 
And three, maintain the show's Google Doc spreadsheet with status of stories. Just for the sake of clarity, this podcast is a labor of love. And How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. No one gets paid, including the editor. For myself, the role took up about one afternoon a week. If you have interest in helping out the podcast or further questions about the specifics, please send me an email at tales to terrify at gmail.com.